We like to think we don't judge a book by its cover, but is that really true? I looked at the photos after and I actually cried. When social media promises instant affirmation through likes of our selfies, how much is our sense of who we are based on what we look like? When I got to about 14, a boy in the youth group at church started leaving me poison pen letters saying, you know, why don't you just kill yourself, can opener? What effect does a life-changing accident have on our self-image? I just woke up and was like, well, who's going to want me now? I'm Sally Phillips. Welcome to the Things Unseen podcast, where we're thinking about what beauty is. It's in the eye of the beholder, we're told, but is it truly 100% subjective? And what about inner beauty? We'll be talking shortly to someone who knows firsthand how our appearance can dramatically affect our life, and even, she says, our mental health. And our first guest was forced to confront these issues following a fateful day two years ago, which reshaped her life forever. Vicky Bolsh, welcome to Things Unseen. Thank you. Would you mind telling those of us who aren't already familiar with you what your life was like on the morning of June the 2nd, 2015? I was out for a fun day out with one of my yeah. friends. Um, we went to Alton Towers Theme Park. Yeah. It was a very windy day. It was quite miserable. It weren't great. Um, we queued up for a couple of rides. We ended up queuing up for the Smiler. It took about an hour or so. And what I had is a really... the Smiler? The Smiler is a roller coaster with quite a lot of loops. Right. We were queuing up for the ride, and I felt I felt a bit funny. Like I had like a weird gut feeling, but at the time I just thought, well, I love the adrenaline. I got off roller coaster rides, absolutely love it. So we were queuing up, and I just sort of pushed that feeling to the back, and we got on and off the ride a couple of times um, because something was either wrong with the ride, or I think they were adding a cart on at some point. And then we set off. We got up to the first hill. Stopped at the first hill. Um, we stopped there for about five minutes or so. And then through the tannoy, someone said, don't worry, we'll get you going soon. There's nothing to worry about. So they set us off. Um, we went round a few loops. And then the one I can remember, we went round and there was a cart stationary on the track. No one was in it. It was one they'd sent out previous and didn't make it up the hill. The front of our cart collided. Um, the bars bent. And obviously from there, we were just swaying. And that was it. <laughs> And uh, you got very badly injured, you and your friend. Yes, yeah. so there was five seriously injured. So what, were you, what was your life like before that moment? I was at university um, doing a foundation degree. Yeah. I was studying international spa management and I was 19, yeah. turning 20, so I was just your normal 19-year-old university student. I loved going out. And what was your idea of beauty? What, what I was what's a professional spa manager? <laughs> I mean, it was obviously really important to you, wasn't it? Like physical beauty, if that was what you'd chosen to study. Yeah, absolutely. So massaging and other spa treatments was what I was good at. That's why I chose to do it. I'm good at makeup. And I, I was always wearing makeup. When I was at university, I was like, oh, I've got to nip to the shop. I can't go out without makeup on. I've got to look perfect. Like I've got to be able to wander around in like a tight dress with no lumps or bumps. I've got to wear my makeup. My hair's got to be perfect. There's no way anyone's going to see me looking any different. And so then you got to hospital and it must have been such a shock. What's the first thing you remember? I remember being in the helicopter, getting to the hospital. I remember waking up after the first operation. They just had to like, just stabilise everything. So I had a fixator on... What's a fixator? Of, a fixator is just like a big metal cage sort of looking sort of thing. is really scary when you have no idea what's going on. So for those who don't know, you'd injured your legs, maybe? I had injured my legs. So my right one, well, they were both very seriously injured. We didn't know whether we'd have to amputate them. We didn't know what was going on at the time. So I had, I think it was six operations, 
to save my leg and clean it, things like that. And they did one skin graft, so they took the skin from the back of my right thigh um, Mm. to put on my lower right leg, tried to save it. And then one day my mum just realised that something's not quite right. Like, she's taken 10 steps forward and she's moved, like, 20 back. Like, she's just sleeping all the time. She's in so much more pain. Like, I was in absolute agony. And the surgeon always said to me, if at any point you want us to stop reconstruction, then we'll amputate. You don't need to give me a reason. He took me into surgery to do the skin graft, and just before we went in, he said, if we need to amputate, do you want me to wake you up, tell you, put you back under amputate, or do you want me to just amputate and then wake you up at the end? I went, just do it. They barely even had to look at it to say that they had to amputate. And so how was that, waking up to that? If I'm honest, I woke up and I saw my mum and one of the sisters from the ward, and they were both in tears, so I was crying. And then I was like, hang on a minute, why am I crying? And it was it was a relief because I was in I was in absolute agony. I mean, don't get me wrong, even after the amputation, I was in so much pain with the phantom pain and really? things like that. Yeah. But it, it was a relief. Did they send a, a vicar or a priest to come and talk to you in hospital? Yes, there was a lady vicar that visited me every week or probably more than once a week whilst I was in hospital and that isn't because I'm particularly religious. I went to a C of E school yeah. Um, things like that, but I, I never sort of stuck with it after I moved from that school. But there was something calming and there was something nice to speak to her. I don't know whether that is because she was a vicar or because that who she was as a person. It was nice to have someone there, and I remember it was one of the operations. It was possibly the first amputation, so the sixth or seventh operation, and. We prayed before we went in, and I don't know why I was doing it. I, I have no idea why I was doing it. It just felt like the right thing to do. I wanted to do it. And as much as the nurses were like, come, we need to get you surgery, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Like, I want just let me. And I've, I've never really prayed as such since leaving school, but I think things like that do interest me. And it, it was not strange, but it was different how I wanted to at that point when I've never felt the need to before. And so um, how was it using your new leg for the first time? Because of the skin grafts, they became ulcerated and it was very painful, so I couldn't actually wear a prosthesis for a lot longer than if they hadn't have become infected. They amputated in July and I got my first prosthetic in December and I couldn't wear it for a very long time and the knee on it wasn't like the microprocessor I've got now. It just If I put weight on it and it wasn't straight, I'd just fall over, so I was falling over all the time and then my mum got upset my mum got upset more than I did because she was watching me fall over I had a walking stick I was Mm. 20 years old but when I first did it I remember my mum and dad just being sat there just just staring at me just like she's walking again and I I just couldn't believe it because everyone was like I don't want to get your hopes up you're not going to be walking before Christmas you're not going to have a leg for Christmas and it was with a walking stick but so you're someone who's always been interested in beauty, who's been very good at representing her most beautiful self, uh, you know, doing beautiful eyebrows and, and exfoliation, skin cleanses, small pores, contouring, all of this stuff. <laughs> what did you think about your own appearance when you woke up? So at the time of the accident, I was very yeah. body confident. Yeah. I... Was happy with myself, yeah. Worked out a lot. Worked out a lot. 
did a lot of walking because obviously I didn't have a car at university and it was all uphill and downhill, mm. um, dancing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was really happy with myself. Well, yeah. I, the, I should have been happy with myself. Right, right, that's Just, interesting, yeah. Yeah. And then I remember being led in bed and my mum told me, and I, th- I remember roughly saying it, um, I just woke up and was like, well, who's going to want me now? I have no idea what's going on with the lower half of my body. I can't deal with this, so how can I expect anyone else to deal with this? And then, obviously, with all the medication, I put about two stone weight on. Mm. That My body confidence just hit rock bottom. It was horrible. I, I just wasn't happy with myself anyway, never mind putting the two stone on. And I'd never, I'd always been the same weight for I don't know how long. And so Alton Towers were found culpable. Do you feel...? Yeah. They pleaded guilty. Right. You feel cross with them? Furious no. with them? No, not at all. It, it wasn't anyone's fault. It wasn't anyone's fault? Not in particular. I mean, yeah. training was wrong, but I think it's not important what was wrong because that's been dealt with. That's that's over now. Like, they've they've pleaded guilty um, mm. and they've had the fine. And I think what's more important is that they've put things in place that it won't happen again or, God forbid, it does happen again. Then they've got things in place that it won't be as bad as it was. So how do you go about forgiving... Alton Towers or the universe for this kind of event? Or did you just find it easy? You've just been brought up in a family where people love a lot and forgive each other quickly. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find forgiveness really tough. I'm a terrible grudge holder. I, mean, I don't want to yeah. be. I don't want to be at all. I want to be a really forgiving, merciful person. But actually I find that, you know, I find myself brooding on things and, and getting cross. Yeah, I must say I'm pretty similar, but I think this was a completely... It's not a... Obviously, it's not a daily. Mm. It's not a normal sort of situation you put in. I think I've had a lot of time to think about it. I've had a lot of counselling. At first, I was angry. Mm. And then I was upset. Then I probably mm. got angry again. I mean, I still get... not. I, I don't get angry. I'd get irritated that I can't mm. do things as easily as I used to. I still do most things, but... I think it's it was important for me to say, do you know what, it wasn't anyone's fault because the people who were operating that ride on the day weren't trained properly, but they still got to live with what's happened. And in a way, that could be worse than what's happened to us, in a way. Yeah. Because they've got to live with it. They've got to live with knowing that they were in charge of changing someone's life. But it, it wasn't their fault. It wasn't anyone directly. It wasn't anyone's fault. What what, what changed uh, in your relationships at that point? Did what, you you said you were single when you got on the ride and you woke up feeling like I'm now undesirable? Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Um, so I was dating before. Um, yeah. She's a normal nineteen year old, um, and I just thought nobody would want me. So did you think they wouldn't want you because you weren't attractive now, or because you were going to require extra care now? Both. Both. Yeah, both. My mum did a lot for me and I didn't want to put that on anyone else. People still find me attractive, but it was hard for me to actually believe that. I yeah. didn't believe it. I was like, but what about my leg? And I, yeah. I just couldn't believe that someone would still find me attractive with the two stone put on and with the leg missing. It just didn't make sense to me. Then uh, you've got a friend called Hannah. Yes. And she organised a photo shoot for you. Would you mind telling us about that? Um, so this was at a point where in my life I'd put the two stone on and mm. I wasn't very confident with myself, any aspect mm. of myself. 
I think this was about a year after the accident. It was coming up to my 21st birthday, and she said, I want to get you something that is going to make a difference. I don't want to just get you a normal present, because obviously it's your 21st and everything that's happened. She'd um, actually had the boudoir photo shoot, and she'd done it, and she had a bit of body confidence issues. So she did it, she felt great, she had so much fun, she was very nervous. What, what's the boudoir? The boudoir photo shoot. Um, yeah. It's a studio in Manchester, so you go in, like, there's a few different rooms, like, they've got different, like, props and things like that, um, and you just bring all different underwear and they just mm. do a photo shoot. And it really helped her self-esteem. So she said, do you want to do it? She didn't book it without asking me. She said, do you want to do it? And I said, do you know, that's a really good idea. And then it came to it, and I was like, I don't want to do it. Mm. Um, but I was like, no, do you know what, I'm going to do it. So I did it, and... I looked at the photos after and I actually cried. Like, even my friend cried. My mum was there as well at the um, viewing and even my mum got upset. So it was it was nice to see that, do you know what, you don't have to look absolutely perfect to be sexy or to look beautiful. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's a thought in uh, lots of religions that true beauty comes from within. But actually, seeing yourself looking beautiful on the outside made you feel better on the inside. Looking at myself when I think I look good gives me the confidence inside. What happened then with these pictures? You started to feel better about yourself and you, you made them public, these pictures? Yes, so obviously I made them public um, and I got a really good response. Obviously there was a lot of negativity, but that's always going to happen anyway. I knew that. But then it, it's not those messages that matter. It's the messages you get to say, I love wearing my hair, but I have a hearing aid and I, I don't want people to see it. But seeing you with your pink sparkly crutches or you with your prosthetic on show, like, it makes me want to bling it up and, like, show it off and, like, do you know what? This is me. It's fine. I don't have a real-looking leg just because I don't want to because the functionality of it isn't great anyway. But I'm not bothered if people know if I've got a prosthetic limb or not. So you did this first shoot, the boudoir shoot, and your mum cried and you cried and um, it, it just gave you the beginnings of some self-esteem. And so you decided to do another one. Yes. I had so much fun and I thought, yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah. So I did lose the weight that I planned on losing. Um, so I did the nude photo shoot um, because there's so many sort of role models out there, celebrities or whoever, that look absolutely perfect, have the airbrush skin and whatever else and... If I'm honest, I don't want my nieces or nephews or anyone's kids to grow up thinking, oh, I need a massive bum <laughs> or I need yeah. to wear tons of makeup. Like, I used to think that because I think there's just such a pressure on looking absolutely perfect. You need this shape eyebrow or you need a thigh gap or something. So I did the nude shoot and my mum and dad knew about it and mm. a, a few close friends and probably my sister... And they were all very supportive. Once I explained to them that it's not going to be, like, page three... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. ..whole thing going on. When I explained, it's just... It's the same reasons I did the boudoir. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to show that it's fine not to look perfect. So once they understood that, obviously my dad was a bit like, mm, don't know, <laughs> not yeah. so keen. Your dad would have been like that anyway, yes. wouldn't he? Um, yeah. But when I explained, they were very supportive and then when they came out obviously I had a few cut phone calls from <laughs> older relatives and brothers and stuff saying oh my god what have you done <laughs> I can't believe it yeah but it somehow is so uh, brilliantly challenging you chose once again not to hide your scars and leg and what, why did you do that 
that was the biggest thing. I didn't want to hide my scars because my scars might make me imperfect, but my scars show what I've been through and I'm proud of what I've been through and I'm proud of that I've got through to the other side of it. I do. Can you see a time where you start to really, really love your leg because it's given you some strength? Yeah, I guess that, that's a good way of looking at it because it has given me strength and I wouldn't say I'm a better person than I was, but I'm still the same person I used to be, just sort of a different and better version of it. More focused, I guess. Yeah, more focused. doing more for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not as selfish. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still your normal 22-year-old. I am pretty selfish, but you've summed it up very well. So you modelled for London Fashion Week? Yeah, London Fashion Week. Excellent. Did you love that? Yeah, it was fun. Um, There was a few moments, got there on the day, like, managed to get around London on my own, which is sort of a big step anyway got there and I was just like oh gosh this is really intimidating hair and makeup breeze through that that was fine and then it came to the rehearsal and I was like I don't want to do it anymore I can't do it I'm I'm really scared um I was like no you've just got you've got to do it I had to give myself like a little inner pep talk but it was so scary I did them the shoes I was wearing were very heavy which are difficult with my um, prosthesis anyway um so it kept like seizing up the leg so I was just walking around, it was horrible. Everyone was walking too fast and I was I was so close just to absolutely come panicking and just saying I couldn't do it. Um, and I was like, do you know what? This is literally once in a lifetime. I'm never going to get... Like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I just did it, got on with it. And then after, I was I was just... The... Um, adrenaline. Adrenaline was just... Yeah. It, it was great. It was so much fun. Your story's really inspired lots of people, particularly young women, partly because you've just kept so normal through all of it. But you're now also working as an ambassador for BART's, the Transform Trauma Appeal. You're hoping to raise a million pounds, is that right? Yes, absolutely. They're working on a vaccine that's going to save loads of lives by preventing some of the effects of trauma on the body when people come in. What kind of things are you doing for the campaign? There's been a photo shoot there's been various few things they've got something on twitter at the moment which you do something for an hour so you go out in public wearing your onesie for an hour um sit in a bath of baked beans for an hour different things like that just to work, raise awareness and obviously raise money for the charity so why did you get involved with that campaign in particular i mean there must have been quite a few begging to have you at the front so obviously i've been through trauma yeah um and obviously when i became part of it it's quite I guess it is quite close to my heart because you sort of guess it never happens to you but then once you realise it happens to an awful lot of people it's the biggest killer in the under 30s really? in the UK and it's I think under 1% of medical funding actually goes towards the research for trauma and it's considering so many people go through it on a, day, on like a daily basis it's it's not a large amount no we're thinking about beauty and um, you're just someone who's had so many thoughts about so many different types of beauty. If you're doing a Pinterest board of beautiful things, how many of those pictures would be of faces? How many would be of situations? Like, how much is outside, how much is inside for you now, do you think? I think it's half and half. Yeah. Like, I think it's... I know that having friends and family makes me feel better but I also know that putting my makeup on will make me feel better but if I don't have either of those I'm not going to feel great do you know yeah I do yeah I suppose I mean when you say to me that you were speaking to a, a girl who is ashamed to show her hearing aid 
like for me that's a really beautiful thing that you can give this girl confidence to be who she is that's really really beautiful that's much more beautiful than any eyeshadow yeah absolutely I think it's important to find your own way yeah how to be beautiful it's really interesting to me how the relationship between physical recovery and mental recovery are they are they very very related I don't think they are related I never thought I was depressed or anything and my mental health was it was okay I was seeing a counselor I, I wasn't on antidepressants I was I felt as if I was doing really well and then it was last Christmas and I don't know whether something triggered it or what happened and I just didn't feel myself um I was going doing like seeing friends doing going out for meals doing the usual things and I just felt as if I weren't in the room. I felt as if I was... I knew I was there. Like I was sat there. I was having all these conversations, but I just didn't feel like I was there. I absolutely loved going to the gym. Didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. I would be crying all the time, and I, I just don't know what happened still to this day. I don't know why I felt the way I did. And it took my mum to literally put me in the car to drag me to the doctors and say, do you know what, I'm, I'm not OK. So I started seeing my counsellor a bit more. I was put on um, a very, like, the lowest dosage of an antidepressant. And I feel like it, I needed that little bit of help. And at the time, I didn't want to admit it. I didn't. I wouldn't even admit it to mm. myself. But when I did and when I started feeling better, I realised that it's it's OK. And so do you still take an antidepressant? Yeah. But I've, yeah. I've not raised the dosage, it's just, it's the very lowest one, but I just needed that little bit of help to get me out of feeling the way I was feeling. So when you went to university to study international spa management, what were your dreams? How did you hope your life was going to turn out? If I'm honest, I spent two years wondering what was going to happen. Um, I didn't know whether it was possible. I wanted to travel, I wanted to get loads of experience in different spas. I mean, this was, like, the best plan, basically, like, plan yeah. A. And so what are your hopes and dreams now? Now I've got... I'm with the modelling agencies, Ebony. They're getting me a few things, such as London Fashion Week. There's a few things um, on the cards. Um, I'm just sort of... I enjoy the media work, so I'm just seeing sort of where that takes me. I can see the two of us together doing a series on world spas. That sounds we'd brilliant. Ha- we'd have to test them, obviously. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, spas around the world. That'd be fun. Mark them. Like Richard Ayer. That'd be really hard work. <laughs> it would be terrible, wouldn't it? We'd be terrible presenters as well. We'd be, so, we'd be so relaxed. We wouldn't have anything to say. Even worse. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for coming to spend time with us and telling us your story. No, thank you. My second guest is another very beautiful woman. The Daily Mail called her Britain's most glamorous vicar. She's the Reverend Joanna Jepson, an author, mother, disability advocate and currently an army chaplain in Wales. Hello, Sally. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're talking about beauty and been trying to explore the idea of whether it's internal or external or both. And you are someone who has thought a huge amount about this subject. Why do you think uh, you've been so drawn to it? I think the the whole concept of it really landed on my radar in a peculiar way when I was in Top Juniors and a girl in my class approached my desk and leant over and said to me, um, you could have braces when you're older because if you did, you would be pretty once your teeth are straight. 
and I thought, oh my goodness, this word pretty, that's not really kind of occurred to me as something that's important in life at the age of 10. It was quite interesting because there I was being told, you know, you're not pretty. And I was thinking, gosh, I wonder what this means for me. And then my sister at the same age was being scouted to be a model. Um, so very interesting, um, divergent um, yes. ways in which that kind of whole concept landed on our radars, really. And, you know, at that age, I was about to hit adolescence. And when I did, I really discovered what this meant for me and that my teeth not being straight was the least of the problem. And, you know, my jaws grew entirely out of place with one another. My top jaw sort of protruded out of my mouth and my lower jaw receded back into my neck. So it was pretty ugly, really. Or so oh. I was told. Is there a medical name for what was happening to your face? No, I don't think there's a, a label for it medically, but um, it just meant that the the bones weren't set together properly. They didn't right. meet. So it's very difficult to talk, to close my mouth when I was eating, uh, when I was speaking. It, I had to make an effort to kind of um, enunciate and basically, I just decided it would be easier for, for me to hold my hand up across my mouth when I spoke or when I smiled, when I laughed, so that nobody would see this horrible sort of fleshy jaw protruding out of my mouth and call me names, which is what happened a lot of the time. So I grew my hair really long, sort of pulled it down either side of my face like curtains, had my hand up across my mouth, and that's really how I went through the next sort of seven years. So when my friends were sort of deciding to go on a Saturday afternoon down to town, buy a bit of makeup and some clothes, you know, really play with the stuff that teenagers play with to feel better about themselves and explore who they are. I was having a panic attack about getting on a bus and going the journey down to town because I thought... I was going to be called names and it just felt like a whole world that my peers were going through that wasn't accessible to me. And I was I was an observer watching it through a very thick piece of glass. Mm. Your family are Christians, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Did you find that church provided a safe environment or was it more of the same? I think on the whole, I felt I was safe in church and then... When I got to about 14, a boy in the youth group at church started leaving me poison pen letters saying, you know, why don't you just kill yourself, can opener? And that carried on for a, a little while. Well, that sounds like worse than what you were getting at school. Yeah, so suddenly church wasn't all that safe for me. But I think I always felt like the grown-ups at church were yeah. good people, were safe. I could be myself with them. And so I suppose I always gravitated to the company of people who were much older than me because my peers weren't safe. You're the vicar. There's a verse, isn't there, in the Bible about man looks on the outside but God looks on the heart. Was that something that became yeah. real for you at that time? Is it something you came no. across? No. <laughs> that verse, man looks at the, at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. You know, lovely. Yeah, that's true. But to... Tell a teenage girl who is struggling being accepted because of the way she looks 
that it's all okay. It just doesn't, it doesn't touch it because the reality is how you look is still important. Mm. And doesn't matter how much God appreciates your good heart, actually when you're being shaped and formed by your peers and the way they treat you, sometimes your heart doesn't even feel that good. So mm. it took a long time before I was really able to wrestle properly with that verse. It's interesting that there seems to have been um, so much of uh, Christian tradition has focused on separating the mind from the body as if the body is a bad thing. And that hasn't been particularly good uh, for women, has it? No, I, th I think it's so interesting. A little while ago, I went back to my home church to preach on fashion and engagement with the gospel. And I did this sermon and afterwards they had a kind of open mic bit for people from the congregation to come up and sort of share their thoughts. And this woman got up and she said, I just think looks don't matter. God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance, but looks don't matter. And she said it so kind of heavily and so emotionally. And I thought, you know, looks really, really do matter, but we are not giving you the space within your faith to acknowledge that. And I think that has been something that I th throughout my ministry I've really tried to address and sort of say, we in the church need to acknowledge this. Looks do matter. And yes, God looks at the heart. And that is, that's very important, but we can't sort of create this dichotomy between ourselves as bodies and who we are on the inside and God weighing up one part of us more important than the other part of us. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in the, in the church. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, not that everybody in church has to look amazing. No. So um, <laughs> I've heard you interviewed where you said that as a teenager you focused on being beautiful inside. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I basically had this choice, really. If I'm not going to be able to sort of make it in the way that girls are meant to make it as being pretty and beautiful and attractive to the opposite sex then I'm going to have to find some other way to be acceptable. And so I really went into this sort of crazy theological contortion of trying to be righteous, which <laughs> is probably not the same as trying to be beautiful on the inside at all. But, you know, that, that was what I, I tried to be good at. You know, I tried to sort of be this good Christian girl who had the good news to share with everyone. And, you know, it probably wasn't that good news Um to most of my friends. <laughs> so being beautiful inside, what, what, what was your workout? What was your yeah, internal well, beauty routine? <laughs> you know, it probably came down to don't do a lot of bad stuff, really. And yeah. don't do a lot of ordinary stuff that your teenage friends are doing. And I just worked very hard at being set apart. I always love the story that you went off to try and be a nun and they wouldn't have you. It's like Maria. It's like the sound of music. Yeah. yeah, well, I tried to be a nurse first, and oh, that was you? such an utter disaster that they gave me the dead bodies to lay out. <laughs> that is no joke. I was the one who kind of wrapped the, um, the paper label around people's toes and laid these bodies out. And, yeah, what a disaster. But I did that because I thought, I need to get away from this country, and I want to be a 
I want to be an aid worker because if I deal with refugees, they won't have the emotional energy to call me names and laugh at my face. So that was my out. And of course, it came from entirely the wrong kind of motivation. It was all about escape rather than actually listening to what my gifts were. And yeah. then, you know, years later, I wound up in this convent for a day and I thought it was seriously dodgy because the first prayer out of this nun's mouth was seemed to be praying to Mary. And that was a big no-no from this little evangelical girl. And I just thought, this is crazy. And But by the end of the day, with these women, I, I think I encountered real beauty. And I just thought, I, I, I took this nun aside and I said, I need to come and live with you for a while. And she said, OK, you can come for three months in your summer holiday. And so I did. I always like, have you seen Nanny McPhee? No, I haven't. Is oh, that it's great. Watching? Yeah, it's um, it? <laughs> Emma Thompson's playing a nanny and she arrives and she's got buck teeth all over the place. And through the film, they gradually take away, they do kind of the child's eye view of her. By the end, she's the beautiful Emma Thompson we recognise. But wow. at the beginning, she looks really uh, frightening. Yeah, frightening and off-putting. And that's uh, mm. definitely something that I, I recognise. It's quite yeah. a profound thing, isn't it? It was like that, actually, with these nuns. Because yeah. when I first arrived, what I saw were elderly women who looked like their hair had been cut with a knife and fork, you know, <laughs> poking out from underneath their wimple. And, you know, whiskers on their faces, you know, and moustaches from their old age. And, and yet, living with them through that three months... I came to just see these women who were fearless and it seemed to me that their posture to the world was just arms flung open wide. These wonderful, gracious women who were fearless and rooted and wise and beautiful. So there you were, a poor, frightened uh, girl with uh, buck teeth and a receding jaw laying out dead bodies and... <laughs> Uh, and Sounds pretty hopeless. You found... Well, I don't. Well, anyway, it must have been very painful. But you found that there might be a medical solution to your physical mm. situation. That's right. Yeah, so when I was about 15 or 16, the orthodontist said to my mum, we can't do any more with braces now. I think I'd have had every kind of brace possible and they said the only thing really we can do is surgical, but we'll have to wait until she stops growing. So I spent the next sort of three or four years waiting for this series of operations. And it came actually, the, the biggest one came just after I'd sort of dropped out of nursing finally, realising that wasn't going to suit me. You were bullied and at nursing college as well, weren't you? I was bullied horribly at nursing college, far worse than ever I, I received at school. It was horrendous. So um, so you had the surgery, and did it have an immediate effect on your sense of self? No, it took time. I mean, I was so swollen for months, and so uh, I barely looked in a mirror, to be honest. And I took a year out, let the swelling go down, let the muscles sort of find their place again. But it was a very interesting time because suddenly nobody knew me. Nobody knew who I was. They honestly I didn't recognise you. The difference was so extreme. Honestly did not recognise Yeah, Goodness it was so me. extreme. I had to carry around with me a passport photo of myself before the op. 
and show it to people. People who'd known me since I was born or people who were in my class at school swore there was another Joanna Jepson who was in their class. It was extraordinary. And so I had this sudden, this space, and there was no commentary on my face. And that was an extraordinary feeling. You know, there was just n no, no verdict, no judgment. And it was incredibly liberating. But what, what I think I realised was that you can have this surgery, you can have plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, whatever, and it can change your life, but it doesn't heal. And that healing journey is its own whole journey in itself. And that took, you know, years longer. And that's mm. really when I, I went to the nuns and lived with them in my early 20s. And just being alongside them really taught me how to come back to myself, how to come back to my own body and be with myself. Vicky Belch, who I was talking to you earlier in the programme, was talking about seeing herself in a totally different light after her accident, and then she then did a photo shoot in her underwear and just felt reconnected with who she was before. It really hugely affected her inner confidence. What was your relationship with photographs of yourself like now, post the operation? Well, at first, I didn't recognise myself in photos. So... If people took pictures of me, then I'd have to kind of work out who I was because I just wasn't tuned into this new sort of face that I had, a new structure. I think as time's gone on, actually being kind to the images I see of myself before the operation has been quite important. And then, you know, I'm in my 40s now, so I'm ageing in a way, and that's a whole new season of being kind to oneself and choosing not to judge oneself harshly. Does that make sense? Yes, no, uh, I'm an actress, of course, the whole, you know, plastic, plastic <laughs> surgery, cosmetic surgery thing, I think about it constantly, incessantly. It's like a terrible buzzing in my tinnitus. <laughs> so what about people for whom surgery isn't an option? What I have loved has been working with people in the charity Changing Faces, which I worked with them at London College of Fashion. We did um, uh, an exhibition of photographs called Notions of Beauty. And we had lots of different people posing with facial disfigurements, with missing limbs. Alistair, my brother, posed for it as well. People who had facial deformities, a whole range of people and we ended up with a very beautiful exhibition of photos showing portraying and conveying people who had come to terms with their body and now were able to experience what it means and feels like to live with their body and that really is attractive uh, you became the chaplain to the London College of Fashion, which some people would find a surprising move. Yeah. Is that because they've misunderstood what fashion is, do you think? I think nobody really immediately thinks of God when you say the word fashion. So, you know, it's fair enough that it was surprising news that this vicar was going to go and work in the fashion industry. And I suppose if I hadn't had the journey that I'd had... I wouldn't have thought of it, but I was so struck by 
just this huge industry that has so much impact on who we think ourselves to be and how we express ourselves in the world and the way young people in particular strive and are pulled out of themselves, actually, rather than brought home to themselves. And I thought, well, the church really should have a conversation at least going on with this industry because actually there's so much to affirm in it. You know, the root of it all, I kind of think, well, I worship the creator God who's made us in her image. And so it's part of our spiritual DNA that we will be artistic and creative and love design and want to bring things out of nothing and out of our imaginations. And that's part of our vocation as human beings. So I want to affirm that officially, you know, as a vicar Mm. in the fashion industry, I want to say, yeah, you know, you have an important task to To um, do. Yeah. Vicky also got involved with fashion. It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that both of you have been drawn in that, in that direction. Right. Do you think that's because you think more deeply about these areas that have been painful? I should think so. I think it's something to do with wanting to heal, uh, wanting to be playful and enjoy some of the gifts of self-expression. So now you're an army chaplain. You used to have some amazing shirts... What are they called? Those vicar shirts? <laughs> clerical shirts. Clerical shirts. You had some amazing. You had clerical shirts and amazing fabrics, and you had fantastic uh, Chinese collars and stuff, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Do you They've wear them been... now? You put no. them away. You got no. The the army tell you exactly what kind of collar to oh, wear. Oh really? Um, oh, there we yeah. go. There we go. So how is okay. your how is your <laughs> inner fashionista coping with that? Um, I take the hit, to be honest, because I love my soldiers. (laughs) And then I've got a whole wardrobe that I can wear when I'm off duty. The problem comes when you're going out on a night out with fellow officers and they all want to wear tweed. And I just draw the line at it, you know. I'm happy to wear the uniform, but I will not wear the off-duty uniform of a farmer's shirt and a tweed jacket. It's not happening. Joanna... It's such a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Yeah, I loved it too. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Joanna's book about her experiences, A Lot Like Eve, Fashion, Faith and Fig Leaves, is available now. And you can find out more about Vicky's work with Bart's and their Transform Trauma campaign at bartscharity.org.uk. Next month, Santa's in trouble. I'm absolutely honoured to have been asked to write the first ever Things Unseen Christmas drama. Oh no, you haven't! <laughs> oh yes, I have! I'm Sally Phillips, and Things Unseen is the podcast for people who think there's more to life than the purely physical. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.